A farmer's time is valuable. That's why Blaine's Farm and Fleet has made shopping for your must-haves quick and easy. Simply order online at farmandfleet.com and pick up your items in just one hour in their convenient drive-thru. Or try Farm and Fleet's same-day local delivery option. Asma Ahad is the director of Halal Market Development for the Islamic Food and Nutrition Council of America. She says that farmers should know that demand for foods that meet halal requirements is a growing market. But what does halal mean? What are the requirements? And what do market opportunities look like for farmers? For the Midwest Farm Report, this is Carrie Mess. Asma, to start off, I want you to share your unique tie to Wisconsin and our cheese-making heritage. So uh, I did my bachelor's in chemical engineering at UIC, University of Illinois at Chicago. And when I was a junior, I actually interned for Kraft and I worked in their cheese division and I worked on uh, ricotta cheese in my internship. So that's like a, a brand called Palio and it was a predominantly East Coast brand. And we made a lot of lasagnas and tested them out with different recipes of ricotta. And that was really fun. And I fell in love with that job and I fell in love working uh, with milk and making so many amazing things with milk. So uh, before I graduated, they offered me a position. So I started full time at Kraft and I started in their cheese division. And one of my first lessons I did when I worked at Kraft was I I shadowed one of our expert technicians on how to make mozzarella in a vat. And that was an amazing experience. From there, I worked on Kraft American Singles. That was what the first brand actually launched. I I joined Kraft right as they were developing Kraft 2% Singles. And I actually helped launch that product. That was really exciting. And in the process, I learned a lot about the cheese making process. One of the things that amazed me is all the nuances that go into taking a simple material like milk and um, how you process it and how you cure it and how you treat it makes a world of a difference in the product that you end up with. And there's a whole world of different products that you can end up with. And my Wisconsin connection is from Kraft. I actually went for a week-long intensive on cheese making at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I think I even have a certificate somewhere mm-hmm. that says I'm a certified, I don't want to say expert, but I like, certified that I know how to make cheeses and I understand the details of what goes into cheesemaking. You are so, a licensed uh, Wisconsin cheesemaker. <laughs> there you go. After one week class, I, I, I don't want, I, I know there's people who have spent their whole lives probably listening to this, but I don't want to take too much credit. But, you know, I do. I did spend a good portion of my career at Kraft learning about cheeses and how to make different types of cheeses, especially like short hold and long hold and the flavors that you can get um, that, that are derived from the different methods of curing. And maybe I'm not trained in a, in the university, but I did have a, a, a number of years where I did work on making cheese, and that was um, that was that was something I always carry with me because I whenever people talk about cheese making or enzymes, I'm like, oh, I know that, and I understand it enough to be knowledgeable about it. That's a great connection. Tell me more about what you're doing now and what your role is. Right now, I'm working as director of halal market development for the Islamic Food and Nutrition Council of America. We are probably one of the world's leading certifying bodies for halal, but we do much more than that. We actually were started in 1982 and, um, it was started as a not-for-profit organization just to help people understand what halal is and help halal consumers meet their dietary needs because it's a matter of food security and nutrition equity. And um, since then, the, with the, the globalization of the food industry, uh, people, companies and 
governmental experts that used to come to us for advice on meeting the needs of halal consumers started asking us to issue certificates. So we kind of fell into certification. So now we are, we're still a not-for-profit organization, but we're financially independent. And we also like, um, you know, help support different initiatives that promote awareness about equity and diversity in food. For example, we gave a $5 million endowment to Texas A&M University to start the first of its kind uh, food diversity program in the country. And people who go through this program, they get a certificate that verifies that they understand like different aspects of dietary needs for people, whether it's ethnic, religious, or dietary, based on their health or uh, like, for example, gluten-free or so on and so forth. That's an example. And it's our, our support for food uh, security and nutrition equity is not limited to halal. We do focus on halal because we're a halal certifying body, but we are, you know, we do love to enable access to food for everybody. Food is more than just calories in. It's also a tie to our family. It is a tie to where we come from, right? Yeah. You know, and we talk about food and a lot of times people talk about food like it's something basic that you just need to put something on the table and people need to eat it. But what we recognize as people are more get more involved in the industry is that food is sacred to everybody, whether it's for a religious reason or cultural reasons or continuity of tradition. There's a sacred space for food. And, and when we understand how to meet that, we, we are able to serve people in the ways that are meaningful and valuable to them. Asma, tell me, who is it that is looking for halal certified foods? That's a great question. So let me take a step, step back and say the halal is a set of dietary guidelines laid out um, in, the, in the Quran and uh, have been practiced for over 1,400 years by Muslims in the world. And um, so people who are looking for halal food will most likely be Muslim. And what we're finding, though, halal does have an appeal beyond the Muslim consumer. Uh, for example, a lot of college campuses that offer halal food service options, a majority of the people who are going to the food service stations that have halal food are not Muslim. And, it, you know, there's something around the perception um, of the proteins uh, and the food overall that's being offered that uh, they find appealing. And um, there's uh, so basically, yes, at the core, your uh, halal is meant uh, or halal meets the dietary guidelines of Muslims, but it also uh, has an appeal broader than I know there's a lot of nuance here, but can you tell me some of the main points for halal requirements? So halal, uh, halal literally in the in the Arabic means permissible, and it's could be used for anything. Like um, if you say something's okay to do, you can say that's halal. You could do it, but it's most often referred uh, and most often used for food. And um, when people ask me, how do I know what's halal and what's not? And I like to say, everything's halal with the exception of these five things. And it's like uh, pork is forbidden. Alcohol is forbidden. Those are the probably the most common ingredients that are everywhere without us even realizing it. Um, and then the uh, anything that's cross-contaminated with pork and alcohol are com- uh, forbidden. Blood is forbidden. And uh, uh there's animals that are carnivorous that are forbidden. And those things, so like blood and carnivorous animals, we're not eating lions every day. You know what I mean? So it's right. really like, I, I'm not, I don't stress that too much, but those are things that are forbidden. Um, some other things that are are not, uh, that are not acceptable are like certain type of lizards um, and other reptiles. And there are some specific requirements on how animals who meet halal requirements are slaughtered, right? 
So we, let's go with what halal slaughter is. So when we say that all those things are forbidden, but everything else is acceptable. So then like, for example, chicken or beef, those things are acceptable. But um, our, our organization, according to our standards, the animal has to be slaughtered in the uh, in 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 uh, accordance to Islamic jurisprudence, which is uh, which is several things. One thing is the method of slaughter, which is the animal has to be um, uh, slaughtered. Uh, it cannot be dead upon the time of slaughter, and the it has to be cut with the the neck. Uh, the the veins in the neck of the animal have to be cut in uh, quickly with a sharp knife, and the. The, the person who is slaughtering has to be an experienced slaughter person so they do not experience um, that the animal doesn't experience pain excessive pain upon slaughter so those are some some like very direct things when people ask me about what's what's acceptable or what does a, a halal slaughter for you which is it's not just called halal slaughter it's called the beha slaughters the method of the hand slaughter that we're talking about that kind of are the standards according to Islamic uh, jurisprudence that we follow prior to that we do look at we do look at the feed that the animal is uh, that the animal is fed. Uh, we look for you know non-animal proteins. We do actually have a set of guidelines that we follow, and it's not as strict. Like some people say, we only allow organic or whatever, whatnot. It's not strict like that, but it's really looking at the source of the ingredients that the animals. So we've mostly been talking about animal products, but when we look beyond that, looking at your grains, cereals, vegetables, fruit, that kind of thing, are there halal requirements there? That's a great question. Like uh, somebody just asked me about eggs yesterday. I'm like, you can go and just buy eggs and serve them. They don't have to be certified. I think the the biggest thing is when you have processed ingredients, those are the things that need the most oversight, right? So sometimes like, for example, yogurt will have gelatin in it or cheeses will have enzyme in in it, right? So looking at the sources of the enzymes and gelatin are both questionable, if not not permissible in several cases. Um, So, you know, those are the things that warrant further review. But uh, like, for example, when I work with food service operators, I um, asked to look at everything. I said, just send me everything because you think that, oh, this doesn't have anything on it so I can use it. But sometimes you'll be surprised. Like, for example, uh, peanuts are coated with gelatin to retain their freshness and their crispness. And that makes it not acceptable. Like peanut is inherently halal. It's something that is, you know, found in nature and you can consume it. But, you know, it's not acceptable if you process it in such a way that you add ingredients that render it not halal. I had never even thought about that with peanuts. That's really interesting. There's a lot of things like yogurt seems so innocent. You think it's dairy coagulated like milk, but it, there's a lot of additives that, you know, are added sometimes that bring into question if, the, if it's halal or not. And on the cheese side of things, I assume if you were using a vegetarian rennet, you're going to be halal. But if you were using a naturally derived rennet, you're not going to meet those requirements again. And then that also plays into the co-products that come from that, like whey, and where those co-products are used. Yes, exactly. And then same with enzymes and, and all of that stuff. And you have whey. You know, you have the same thing going on with where you have to understand the source. So it's really going. So this is when we talk about the broader appeal of halal is we really go to the source of of production and the source of ingredient. And I think there's a whole movement around understanding the source of ingredient, right? Um, Like people want stuff that's pure at its source. So that's where the appeal of halal comes into the broader population, I think. So let's talk about demand in the market for halal certified foods. What does that look like right now? Is there a lot of growth? So, you know, what's interesting is that 
a couple years ago, I would say even like 10 years ago, five years ago, like people were starting to see halal, you know, say, oh, people are asking about it, but they really didn't understand like how to do it. And they were okay with just kind of just asking questions and being curious. But what I've noticed in the past couple of years is that halal has popped up as a top trend in several food spaces, especially like food service. And the people are really wanting to understand how to do it right. And, and I'm, I'm not talking from a consumer and I'm talking from a professional life, people in industry or people, food service operators, they want to do it right because they want to have veracity and credibility behind their programs. Um, from a cons- And I, I think what's driving this, and I will tell you, I actually have some information say that I know what's driving this is consumer demand. For example, there was a survey done at a high school in Chicago. It's a Chicago public school that's nicknamed Refugee High. It's a Sullivan High School. The reason it's nicknamed Refugee High is some of these students that attend there are refugees. About 15% of the population there is Muslim. And a lot of them come from refugee backgrounds, immigrant backgrounds, a lot of low-income students. And Chicago Public Schools offers free lunches, free breakfast and free lunch for their students. And those students are forgoing free meals, even if they're food insecure in other parts of their lives, because it doesn't meet halal dietary guidelines. So, you know, they actually got the attention of Aramark and the CPS leaders in the food service space in the, and they actually had a conversation and the Aramark said, you know what, this is something we should really respect and we should really have a conversation about to move this forward. And I think that they're in, they're in the works of addressing the needs of these consumers. The world's becoming more blended all the time and that means different needs for students in school. And, you know, I talked about low income and immigrant populations, but what we're also noticing on a college campus is the same, it's the same story plays out. These are probably middle income uh, upper middle class kids, they're they're foregoing food too. And, and they're saying that we're hungry, we're not able to focus in school, we're not able to perform, but we still will pre- you know, preserve our religious values over eating food, uh, even if they're paying into meal programs because their dietary needs are not being met. I've noticed at our small town elementary school, the menu on Fridays during Lent does not include meat. And I've been to many conferences that forget about having a meatless option during Lent. And I see conference attendees decide to not eat that meal. But that's one meal. It's not every meal. And it's not necessarily people who are food insecure to start with. And that's and that's a challenge, right? There's an author who is he's a former Wall Street Journal correspondent. His name is Roger Thoreau, and I kind of probably botch his quote, but he he says it so well. He says, "Poor nutrition is a life sentence." for underperformance and underdevelopment. And so you're really setting all these people up for failure when you're not delivering nutrition, food security, nutrition equity for them. That is so spot on. Hungry people can't really focus beyond being hungry. Yeah. And, you know, know, it's funny because when we're talking to the kids at Sullivan High School, they're like, you know, some of our some of our fellow classmates who are similar backgrounds to us, they act out in class and the teachers hate them. The teachers don't like them because they're acting out in class. And they're like, they're acting out because they're hungry and they can't Mm -hmm. focus and they're this is this is their expression of the, the the situation that they're in and you know until we're able to put a finger on it and address the issue you know the the, the ability to excel is going to be limited for these students So now that you've explained a little bit about what halal certification is, what it means, and who is looking for it, let's change gears a little bit and talk about how farmers out there could maybe get into meeting that demand in the halal market. 
Tell me more about certification and what you see as a way for farmers to meet that need. One of the biggest challenges, whether I'm talking to a big food service provider or a small food service provider, um, and I'm using food service because that's where most of my experience is in, but it, it probably could translate to other spaces as well, is that access of pro- to proteins that people have is very limited. And I'm talking about like food service vendors who want to add suppliers to their list that meet the standards required by Zavia Halal Slaughtered. So there's a lot of space and a lot of growth in this conversation. And the way a farmer could do this is they, they could work with a butcher or they could hire halal slaughtermen and they have to have the proper oversight, right? So to make sure that, you know, there's a lot of people that claim they're doing things and because there may not be laws to enforce it, there's no way to build trust in that system. So, you know, we, we want to make sure you have the proper oversight and that's something that our organization provides. Once you have that done, you can become a supplier uh, for halal chicken or beef or whatever you're supplying and there is a demand for it. For example, when I'm working with university and colleges, they are they are saying their biggest challenge is finding proteins to fit their to fill their menus. So there's definitely a niche there to be explored for farmers, especially in the Midwest. Um, like for example, we just found uh, University of Chicago was having trouble sourcing uh, poultry, and we found them a, a poultry farm in the Midwest, and we were able to set up. Uh, and this was a poultry farm that didn't do Zabia Halal, and we set it up for them. We helped them set up their program, and now they regularly supply the, the chicken to, to, the, to the university. That was Asma Ahad. She's the Director of Halal Market Development for the Islamic Food and Nutrition Council of America. She was sharing a little bit more about what halal is, what the certification requirements are to meet halal standards, and some insight on the halal market out there for farmers who might be interested in meeting that need. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about halal certification and what Asma does, check out ifanca.org. For the Midwest Farm Report, this is Carrie Mess.